I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 5. Acts, chapter 5, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning as uh, we continue looking into God's Word, Acts 5. While you're turning there, let me just mention a couple of things. Two people in particular it's good to see today. Elmer Scherzer is with us this morning. He's not been with us for some time uh, after his summer of ministry at, uh, at Whiteout Campground, and it's good to see him today. It's also very good to see Jeff Bittner back from his deployment over um, so it's good to have him back with us. Jeff, what, it, can, is it still secret where you were? Jeff was in Afghanistan and uh, is here with us today, so uh, we're pleased to see him. Now, there's somebody who uh, you can't see today, but we hope will make a soon and sudden appearance. Little baby Miller is due any day now. So uh, this week, remember to pray for Samuel and Mary as uh, they will be welcoming uh, their second son to the world. Now, Acts chapter 5, I hope you're there. I'm going to read it in uh, just a moment. So that's good. Um, I have not tried to prove this myself, uh, but I think it would be difficult to find someone who was raised in the United States in the last 50 years who has in some way not had contact with Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, you remember probably reading some of his, her books or uh, being read to of her books in school, Little House in the Big Woods, uh, Farmer Boy on the Banks of Plum Creek. And many of you have seen at least one or two episodes of the television show. Uh, it first aired in 1974. Uh, I know some people have the, uh, the whole series on DVD, and it's still at their house today, the show they watch the most, Little House on the Prairie. Um, Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote her biography, her autobiography, it was called The Pioneer Girl. That was the first thing she wrote, and she wrote it when she was uh, in her early 60s in the 1930s. And they released uh, a copy of her autobiography, the first book she wrote, uh, a few years ago. Very soon you will be able to buy, though, an official annotated version of her autobiography. See, there was a difference between the stories that Laura Ingalls Wilder told and the life that she led on the prairie. The reason there was a difference is because as she thought about her life, there were some things that she had seen and had encountered that she thought it would be best perhaps to leave out of the children's versions of the story. Uh, for example, uh, the children's books leave out the story of how once in a town called Burr Oak, little Laura saw a man who was so drunk that when he tried to light his cigarette, the whiskey coming out of his breath uh, ignited and he exploded and instantly killed him. That's not in any of the children's books. <laughs> uh, the children's books also leave out the story that of uh, the shopkeeper that she knew who used to drag his wife around by her hair and once dropped kerosene all over their bedroom and lit it on fire because he was in a rage one day. I don't think that was Mr. Olson. I don't think so. Though Nellie might drive that to you sometimes. <laughs> Uh, even, even Charles Ingalls, Charles Ingalls was not quite what he appeared to be in the books and on the television show. 
A lot of similarities. The real Charles Ingalls was a very affectionate and a restless man. He loved to play the violin. But one time he led his children. They snuck out of town one night without paying their rent because Mr. Ingalls, Charles, couldn't uh, it found it impossible to negotiate with the landlord whom he called a rich old skinflint. I can't imagine Michael Landon ever doing that. This is the Charles Ingalls that we know uh, from the books and the Charles Ingalls who really existed. He's a fine man in many ways, but still not, not perfect. And there are two ways that I think Laura Ingalls Wilder's story uh, and the difference between her real story and the, the, the fictionalized account, there's two ways that this connects to this passage. First, before us is a story where the main characters, their goal in life was to look better than they really were. That's the temptation that everybody in this room understands. Everybody in this room, you want people to think that you're more disciplined and less greedy and more pure and less angry than you actually are. And the second point of this connection between Laura Ingalls Wilder's story and, and this, this story in Acts is that we're going to read this account that reveals to us that unlike Laura Ingalls Wilder's um, um, purified, censored stories, uh, we're going to see here a rather unsavory part of the early church in the book of Acts. See, in the 1930s, Laura Ingalls Wilder, for some reason, for a number of reasons, when she put her memories down on paper, she thought it would be best to clean things up a little bit. When Luke puts down on paper the story of the early church, he, he doesn't. We see the church in all of its wonder and beauty and imperfections. Let's read here this story, shall we? Luke 5, uh, Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Um, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So one comment here before we go on. That little word also in verse 1 connects immediately back with the scene that had happened before. We, we talked about this last week. This is a practice in the church. The, those who were more well off were selling their goods, selling their land, their extra houses, and bringing all the proceeds and sending them at the apostles' feet. And they were using that money to support those who were, had dire needs in the congregation. Well, here's another story. Ananias and Sapphira also sold it. But they held back some of the money. Verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, 
Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got from the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is a very honest story, isn't it? And frankly, it's, it's one of, a story that has disturbed a lot of people. Think about how the tone changes in the book of Acts. Um, over the last few weeks, we've seen this fledgling group of believers grow to a congregation of 5,000 people. They're courageous and they're faithful and they're united and they're generous. And apparently they are dangerous, very dangerous. I spent a lot of years in Sunday school, and I have never seen a flannel graph version of this story. (laughs) Here's some of the questions that people ask. What happened to Peter? Peter had just committed one of the worst sins that you could possibly think of. He had denied the Lord, and he had been forgiven. What happens to him? Where's the compassion? Where's the, the grace that Peter should know about that he should be willing to extend to Ananias and Sapphira? Is this, this is a case of Peter becoming the Fred Phelps of the book of Acts? You know, Fred Phelps, the pastor of Westboro Baptist Church. He's passed away now. Is, is Peter, what happened to Peter? Some people ask the question, why is God so angry in this story? Is this really the sort of justice that God advocates? Or in another category, some people say, should we really take what, what Peter says about Satan seriously in the church? Is there. Why has Satan filled your heart? Or then, then there's people who wonder about the supernatural nature of this story. This is about two people who dropped dead in the middle of the gathering of the church. Now, some scholars have tried to work around this. Uh, they, they try to, to change the, the tone or the focus of this story. Their explanation is that what happened was two people in the church suddenly got sick and died. And these early believers thought, they thought that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, had abolished physical death. So they didn't quite know what to do with the fact that somebody had actually died. So in order to cover the fact that apparently Jesus hasn't abolished physical death, they made up this sin story and this judgment story. That's a, uh, an explanation of what happens here. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of detail, a great amount of time, talking about the supernatural nature of this story, other than to remind you this is by far not the first supernatural thing that happens in the book of Acts or that is reported in the book of Acts. Do you know the first person to speak in the book of Acts, besides the narrator, Luke, the first person to speak is a man that we believe was God in the flesh who died and came back from the dead. If you have a problem with the supernatural in the book of Acts, you have a bigger problem than just these events here in Acts chapter 5. This is a stunning miracle here in Acts 5. This is hardly the foundation on which Christianity rises or falls. That stands, of course, with the resurrection. Um, It was the consistent witness and belief of the early church that Jesus rose from the dead, and it it is a 
a historical event that stands up to the scrutiny of all who would question it. I, I, I mention this, it seems like every week, right? <laughs> One of my hopes uh, as we look at the book of Acts is that by reading it and studying it, we would become more and more transfixed and the resurrection uh, uh, would, would change us. I don't think it's possible to sing and speak and pray and think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ too much. It changes everything. In the last 20 years, we have been thinking more and talking more about uh, what is called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a breadth in that diagnosis, but most often we think of it in terms of our uh, soldiers who returned from the battlefield. They saw terrible things and experienced terrible things. And what happened to them has irrevocably changed them. And we talk about that as post-traumatic stress. Here, though, there's a group of believers who have been transformed by the resurrection. Negatively, we say, he went off to war and he's never been the same. Positively, though, in the book of Acts, we say... They have seen the risen Christ, and they have never been the same. Uh, Beloved, let let us teach and sing and pray and so live that people will say of us, that group of people, they really believe that Jesus is alive. It's changed everything about their lives. I'm not disturbed by the supernatural in Acts chapter 5. You shouldn't be disturbed either. We believe somebody came back from the dead. After that, everything else is small potatoes. Now, let's as a way that we're going to unfold this story, shall we? Let's talk about the characters in the story. That's how I want to move through this text. I want to talk with you about the five significant characters in this scene. And the first one that I want to talk about is Peter. What happened to Peter? Where's the mercy and the grace that Jesus had extended to him? You might be tempted to ask that question, except if you look more closely at the text. See, this is not the story of an out-of-control religious fanatic. This is not Peter assuming some sort of of, uh, prophetic pronouncing position. He's not uttering curses. He's not... Uh, uh, offering incantations. He's, he's not angry and raging in this text. In fact, all, all he does is he asks questions. By my count, he asks Ananias four, and he makes one declaration. He asks Sapphira one question and makes a declaration about, about her. It, there's almost, it's almost in the text this sense that Peter, the text doesn't say this. I wonder, though, if Peter was just as surprised as everybody else when Ananias dropped over. There's no sense in which he knew that that was going to happen to Ananias. So that, you know, he looked at him and he said, drop dead. He, there's not at all in the text. What, what happens actually is that Peter has prophetic insight um, from the Holy Spirit. He's able to see into Ananias' heart. Um, something only that God can do. So Peter is here as a prophetic spokesman, but he's, he's not actually the main character in the story. That role is probably reserved for the next two people that I want to think about here, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, we don't know very much about them. 
you remember last week when he talked about uh, Barnabas? That's actually just up in, in chapter uh, 4, verse 36. Look at all we know about him. He's a Levite, his position in society. He's from Cyprus, his hometown. His nickname, Barnabas. And from his nickname, we know a little bit about his character. We don't know any of those things about Ananias. We don't know where he's from. We don't know his position in society. We don't know uh, about his, his character in the church. There's some people who even wonder if Ananias and Sapphira were, were believers. See, uh, when Luke uses the word man to describe somebody in the book of Acts, and he, when he just says a man, and he doesn't describe that person as a believer or a disciple or uh, indicating anyway his faith, when, when Luke just uses that word man to describe someone, most often he's talking about someone who's not a believer. Maybe this is uh, Ananias and Sapphira, people who were loosely associated with the edge of the church. We, we don't know. They're well off. We know that they have extra land that they can sell, but that's a really about all that we know about them. And what had happened was apparently Ananias and Sapphira had seen people sell their land and bring it the money and put it at the feet of the disciples and uh, the apostles. And uh, they were so, th- those people received acclaim and thanks. And apparently that's what Ananias and Sapphira wanted for themselves. But the problem is that he wanted to keep some of the money f- for himself. You can imagine this happening, right? You, you think to yourself, you know, we have an extra vehicle, and we're not really using it, and so uh, I know what we'll do. We'll sell it, and we'll give the money to um, Samaritan's Purse that's doing relief work in West Africa and trying to help in the e- Ebola situation. That would be a good thing to do for him. And this is your plan, and then you sell your car, and you're holding in your hand all this cash, $2,000, right, you have in your car, from, in your hand. And you think, well, that's a lot of money. You know, if we kept a hundred and we could go out for a really, really nice dinner and just give them nineteen hundred, I mean, that, that's still a, a nice gift. The problem, though, that Ananias and Sapphira had is that they they lied about this. See, they are facing the temptation—a temptation that everybody here knows about. It's the temptation to try to look better than you actually are. You, you know that, right? This impulse to impress people or please other people. Doesn't it manifest yourself in itself in dozens of ways in your life? I'm discouraged about this in my own life when people ask me good, accountable questions. We're talking these days in our church about mutual care, our care for one another and how important that is. And I hope that means that people are asking you good soul questions. That they're asking you questions about the condition of your heart. But does it ever happen that you're tempted when people ask you those questions to shade things a little bit so you look a little bit better than you actually are? Does that ever happen in your growth group or your accountability group? Someone asks you about your spiritual disciplines. They say, hey, how's your your prayer life going? And you say to them, well, not bad. Uh, I have some room to grow, but I'm okay. That's what you say and what you hope they think is they hope you hope that they think that you're praying every day 
25 minutes instead of the 40 minutes that you actually said that you were. You hope that's what they think. The truth of the matter, though, is that when you say, not bad, I have some room to grow, the truth of the matter is you didn't pray last week. You didn't pray Monday, Wednesday, or Thursday. You fell asleep while trying to pray on Tuesday and Friday. You prayed, but it was grace at a restaurant, so it was over as fast as you could possibly do it. And that's what you mean when you struggle. I'm, I'm struggling to pray, right? So the difference between what you say and what you hope they think in reality or, or what happens when it, time, when it comes time in your group to confess your sins to one another and you, you say, oh, I struggled a little bit with lust this week. That's what you say. And what you think, you, you hope that they're thinking is that you flipped twice through the swimsuit edition of the Land's End catalog. That's what you hope they're thinking. And the reality is you didn't struggle at all this week. You, you succumbed every single moment you had. Well, I struggled a little bit with lust this week. Jesus, there is within us this impulse to, to minimize our faults and maximize our graces. And at its root, this is an expression of pride, isn't it? Self-centeredness, self-focused fear. Everybody here knows about this. Let's remind one another, though, of why we are Christians in the first place. We are not those who believe in Jesus Christ, our helper, who gives us a little boost that we need from our awesome position of goodness. We are those who believe in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has come to rescue us from the miserable mess that characterizes our life. Uh, John Claypole has a, has a friend of his. He wrote about him. His name was um, John Rogers. And John Rogers was a teacher at uh, Virginia Episcopal Seminary. And one night, in the middle of winter, he got this phone call in his house. It woke him up from his sleep. And it was a young man. And it was a young man that John Rogers remembered from years ago. Years ago, John Rogers had been a pastor. And in his church, there was this family. And this, this little boy, he remembered this little boy was part of this, this family. This little boy had grown up and he'd uh, gotten himself involved with uh, drug addiction and he lost contact with his family. He was out of work, he was out of money, and he found, though, John Rogers' phone number in the phone book and he called in desperation John Rogers. He said, would you help me? John Rogers left his house, went down to the the bus station where this man was and um, took him home, fed him supper. John Rogers sat with him and talked to him, and what happened to you? And he was asking about his life, and and he he said, have you ever asked Jesus Christ to help you in in your troubles? Have you turned to Christ? And and the young man said, well, you know, uh, when I get myself together and I start coming back to church, then I'll ask Christ to help me. And Rogers said, you don't understand, that's not the way it works. If you think that you have to get yourself together on your own and then come to Christ, you'll never do it. In fact, it's impossible. You're going to have to come to Christ as you are at this moment, and then he will do the work in your life to put yourself back together. We believe in Jesus Christ, our Savior, not Jesus Christ, our Helper. We believe that we were in such a spiritual condition, such a mess, that there was nothing we could do to clean ourselves up under condemnation from God because of our rebellion against him. 
The only way to become a Christian is to confess to God your need, your need for forgiveness. Several years ago, I read a wonderful article about criticism. It was by Alfred Poiret. He said, when someone else criticizes you, when they say something awful about you, it doesn't matter how true or false it is or how bad it is. It doesn't matter because no one ever can say anything worse about you than God has not already said by the cross of Jesus Christ. Your condition is such that God slaughtered his son in order to provide forgiveness and redemption. We're so lost. We're so broken. That's the only way that God could rescue us. And Christians are those who have turned to him for forgiveness and for life. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And by that confession, I am saying to you, I am a sinful man. I am prone to temptation. It draws me. When you read in the Bible about the fruits of the flesh, I have done all of them. I am guilty of them. That's what I confess when I say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us not succumb to this temptation to make you think, to make one another think that you're, you're better than, than you actually are. We all understand it, but by doing it, we're denying the gospel that we celebrate and we profess to believe. Now, look at how in this text here, Peter describes what they've done. All right. In verse three, they have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse five, it says you have lied to God. Two things that, that Peter's describing what they did. Now, if this were a class, it's not, I know, but if this were a class called Systematic Theology 101, and we were talking about how we know the Holy Spirit is not just a force or not just a feeling, but God himself, we could use these verses. It would be a great place to say, look how Peter in just a few verses identifies. They said you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you've lied to God. He identifies God and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is divine, but this is not a systematic theology class, so we won't point that out this morning. So they've lied to the Holy Spirit. Perhaps they've made a public vow. Maybe they had publicly said, we're going to give all of our money from the land and um, that, that's the, they broke that public vow. That's how they lied. In verse 9, it's, it's described, you have tested the spirit of the Lord. This is a concept that comes up an awful lot in the Old Testament, isn't it? Testing God means that you're acting as if you're not accountable to God for what you do. It's, it's provoking him. It's acting as if he won't intervene. It's what happens. Huh. Your, your, your toddler is testing you, right? Don't touch that vase. And what do they do? Right? They touch it and they look at you. What are you going to do? <laughs> testing God. Doing something you know is wrong, but you insist on it. I know what God says about sexual purity, but this feels good. I want it. Or when you sin and say, God will forgive me, that's God's job. Oh. We understand what Ananias and Sapphira did. We understand why they did it. 
you know what really should disturb us about this passage? What should disturb you about this passage is not the fact that two people 2,000 years ago in the church dropped dead at God's judgment because of what they had done. What should really disturb you about this passage is that God hasn't done it yet to anyone in this room. We're so much like this. Ananias heard these questions from Peter, and Peter tells him, um, and, and he didn't. Ha- Peter tells him, "You didn't have to lie about this. You didn't have to donate all this money. You you could have. All the land was yours. It was in your power. You could have given half. You could have given a third of it. It would have been generous and and welcomed. But it's this lie that you told, and Ananias drops dead from fright. Maybe some people say maybe Peter was really glowering at him. Actually, this is." God took his life. It's divine judgment. Now, what's, what surprises me about this passage? Did you think about this, verse 7? Three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. I know they don't have cell phones here, but cer- certainly somebody would have let her know, right? Your husband died. How does she not know? The text doesn't tell us. Uh, I wonder, a good suggestion that I've heard is, that if, as in keeping with what happens in the Old Testament at times, if someone dies on the basis of the judgment of God, there is to be no mourning, and that person is to be buried as quickly as possible. You take the body out, you bury it, and get rid of it, and nothing is said. There's to be no mourning, no grieving. To mourn in these instances would seem to indicate that God had made some sort of mistake, or that you disagree with God about the justness of the decision that he has made. Think about this, though. I, I wonder, too. Sapphira, she walks in three hours later. What is she expecting when she walks in? Oh, Sapphira, you and Ananias are so generous. You've given all this money. Everything that you promised you had given, we're so great. That is not what happens to her. Peter asked her a question. She, she could have repented. She could have said, no, it's not the whole price. She, but she suffered the same fate of her husband. And these same young men come in and take her body out too. Ananias and Sapphira are obviously villainous people, but be very careful. Be careful of how quickly you condemn them. Now let's move on here and think about this fourth character in this text. Satan is the fourth character in this text I want to consider. Again, notice the supernatural nature of the life of this church. There are cosmic forces at work, the Spirit of the Lord and Satan himself. This Satan is the character in the Bible who opposes God. I believe he was one of the angels, one of the most beautiful and powerful angels created by God in the early um, moments of his working to create the universe. And this angel rebelled against God and has been opposing him in every aspect of God's work from the beginning. His presence here should not surprise us. Think about this. Every time in the Bible that God begins something new or does something grand, there is opposition. Satan is there to destroy it. When God called the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, and what do the people down below do? They build a golden idol and worship it. Satan at work in their lives. When Joshua led the nation into the promised land and they have this great victory over Jericho, what happens? There was a man in the tribe, his name was Achan, and he kept some of the proceeds for himself. 
Everything was to go to God. He kept something for himself. Actually, Achan and Ananias have a lot of similarities. Achan kept something for himself. The Israelites were routed in their next battle. God comes to David and he says, Oh, David, I am going to give to you a dynasty. You're going to have a descendant of of yours on the throne forever. And within a few chapters, David is out walking in his, his palace and he sees Bathsheba bathing. Or just think about even the beginning of the Bible. There's another husband and wife team right in the beginning of the Bible. And God calls this beautiful world into existence and he puts his husband and wife together there. And what do they do? They listen to the lies of Satan and rebel against God. Here is our enemy at work. The text says that Satan filled the heart of Ananias. Now, what does that mean here? Filled the heart. Satan has filled you. We're familiar with the filling, filling language. It's all over the first few chapters of Acts. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Ananias is filled with Satan. Now, as the New Testament unfolds, we discover that's the different things. But what they have in common here is the influence that Satan is exerting in Ananias' life. Not control, but influence, temptation. Do not ignore this threat that exists to our congregation. There are cosmic forces that are arrayed against us. When we meet together as a church, when we gather together to pray, when we seek to move forward in fulfilling the mission that Christ has given us, we have no reason to expect that we would be exempt from this satanic opposition. He is a clever foe. In the book of Acts, actually, John Stott points out how Satan seems to be at work in the church. The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and what does, what does Satan do first? He raises up persecution from without, so Peter and John are arrested. Well, that doesn't work. They keep, they keep preaching. So in chapter 5, if pressure from without doesn't work, he tries moral corruption from within. And here we have this story of Ananias and Sapphira. He's trying to destroy the church this way. Then in Acts chapter 6, we'll get to it in a few weeks, if he can't try persecution from without and moral corruption from within, he'll try distraction. Acts chapter 6, the apostles are going to be distracted from their work of preaching and praying. Uh, and, and so they have to solve this, this problem. Our clever foe. Now the last character in this story is God himself. God himself. Think for a minute about what he does. He, he judges. He takes the lives, the lives of this man and this woman. Actually, what's, what's here is very much the inspiration, perhaps, for why Paul wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and 17. Look what the text says, what that verse says. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? He's talking to the church, about the church. If anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. God displays here a level of ferocity in defending his church. We sang a few minutes ago and we sang, Oh, worship the king, our shield and defender. How does God protect his people? Well, here's one way that he does it, with a ferocity against these posers. See, it's God's intention that you read this story and that you be sobered. In fact, he tells us that twice. 
Verse 5. Great fear seized all who heard. You should change that for us, right? Great fear seized all who read about what had happened. Verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I don't think this is Luke's expectation that this is going to happen all the time or even most of the time. God here is trying to make a point, not establish a pattern. It's very similar to what happened with the healing miracles. We, see, we read about the healing miracles and we say, Oh, Jesus, you are great in power to restore life and forgiveness. This is a marvelous story. And we read Acts chapter 5 and we see God's power and we say, Oh, God, you are great in justice. Why are they afraid? Great fear seized them. Why are they afraid? They're afraid of God's holiness, his ferocity. This is the second time this week I've actually spoken about God's justice. We're talking about the book of Amos in the young adult Bible study. God's justice is protective. God watches out and protects his church, and he does not forget those who harm his church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. What would it be like for our church to be marked by great fear? This is why this church, we talked about it a few weeks ago, in Acts chapter 2, they pray to the God they believe is massive. Oh God, you who called the world into existence and you reign and rule and you knit together the plans of evil people and you cannot be defied. Where did they get this view of this massive God? Here's an example of where this massive view of God comes from. Acts chapter 9, this theme continues in verse 31. It says, the whole church was marked by great fear of the Lord. And actually in the midst of it, God blessed the people because of their great fear of him. What does it mean to worship with great fear? If we take this story seriously, what this means for us, surely, how can we take this story seriously and think that our first priority when we gather together as a church is to entertain one another or to make this a comfortable place? where people won't feel threatened. <laughs> you should feel threatened by this God. How, how, how can we possibly think that we would gather together sloppily? Oh, that you would prepare yourself to come to worship in the morning. Our lives are like this. My life is such that I do so many different things on Saturday and I think about so many things through the week and, and I don't go to bed as early as I want ever on Saturday night and I wake up on Sunday morning and I am not naturally inclined to come and sing of my awe of the God who exists. Is that the way you wake up on Sunday morning? I, I bet your experience is more like mine naturally. Than, than waking up Sunday, Sunday, it's Sunday. Reading this story, brothers and sisters, changes how you get out of bed on Sunday morning or what you do when you finally get out of bed on Sunday morning. I wonder if the time that you arrive at church reflect that you come with great fear. 
Not the time we start, not the time we're supposed to start, but the time that you actually saunter in the door. Great fear sees the congregation. God does not do this every time. In his mercy, he, he relents in striking members of the church dead during meetings. What does it look like for a church to sing with great fear? How does our prayer life as a congregation sound different because we have great fear? How do we conduct congregational meetings or practice church membership with great fear? James 3 says, not many of you should be teachers because those who teach will be held to stricter account. How do you serve as an elder in a church with great fear? Hebrews 13, 17 says that elders will be held uh, accountable for the work that they do in shepherding the flock of God. Great, great fear. In 2012, uh, Dakota Guerin... He, was, he lived in Portland, Oregon, and he, and he was doing some part-time work for a, a woman. And while he was in her home, he stole a coin collection. The family coin collection was worth about $100,000. She reported to the police, and they questioned him, and they said, No, I didn't take it. I don't have it at all. Nope, there was no evidence. Um, but then he started spending the coins. Um, they're very rare and valuable coins. He started actually spending them at their face value. So he, he and his girlfriend went to a movie theater and they used the quarters that he'd stolen, the quarters that uh, face value of 25 cents, but they actually were worth between 5 and $68 each to buy a movie ticket and popcorn. And then he, he later used some of those coins, those same coins, and they were nickels and dimes and quarters and half dollars. He used them to buy pizza. He actually handed over Uh, coins that were worth $18,000 to buy his pizza. (laughs) When he was arrested, he was sent to jail, and bail was set at $40,000, which he didn't realize it, but he actually had that in his pocket. See, Garen did not know the value of what he had, and he was a fool. This passage pleads with us. Church of Christ, don't make this mistake of thinking that are undervaluing the relationship with God that you have or the glory of the God that you worship. Let's be a congregation that is marked at the same time by overwhelming joy because Christ has risen from the dead and the realization that the God that we serve is worthy of great fear. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that the only reason that we can come into your presence is because Jesus Christ, our great high priest, intercedes for us. And Father, we are grateful to you that you provide mercy and forgiveness through that same Savior for the righteous and the good things that we do. Lord, we have come to worship you this morning and we confess we, we fail in, in because of our, our sloppiness or thoughtlessness or ill preparation. 
we're grateful to you that, that though we are worthy of it, you do not strike us dead like you did Ananias and Sapphira. But Lord, we plead with you and ask that in light of your greatness and because of your mercy, you would cultivate in us this great fear that our church would be marked by reverence for your holy name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and is to come. You are great in power. You are merciful to protect us and gracious to forgive us. Transform us, change us, that we would walk reverently before you. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.